Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Eleanor Yanniger. Hello. Hello. Eleanor. Uh, regular listeners of the show will know that not only is Dr. Eleanor not just a friend of the show, she is part of the show. We record sex jams right. together. Um, and uh, as this is part of our you know professional relationship. Uh, but also... Um, Ellen has written this amazing book called The Once and Future Sex, Going Medieval on Women's Roles in Society, which is out in... When is it out, Eleanor? It is out on uh, Tuesday the 17th in America, mm-hmm. but in March for the UK, New Zealand and Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be big, folks. Uh, <laughs> it's... Um, it is, so uh, I'm absolutely thrilled that we're going to talk about it on this little show uh, talk about what an amazing uh, book this is. So, um, I don't know, tell us, uh, just tell us briefly, like, uh, what brought you to this book? Uh, mm-hmm. What brought you to these topics? Um, and like an overview of what you're trying to do in the book before we really get into it. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that this is one of these things about being a leftist historian more generally, is that um, a lot of the time when one does see leftist historians, um, they are not historians of the medieval era, just to put it bluntly. You know, oftentimes uh, you could be forgiven for thinking that leftist history focuses exclusively on, you know, uh, the, uh, the industrial era forward. Um, but uh, that does us all uh, quite a great detriment. And uh, what I was kind of trying to do with this book was apply, I suppose, historical materialist uh, frames of reference to the medieval period as well as, you know, using, you know, feminist new materialist uh, frames of reference to kind of explain what the history of women was at the time. And beyond that, uh, you know, I wanted to make a really accessible polemic about the, the way that women lived in the medieval period. So hopefully this is going to be something that a broader community of individuals can read. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's all kind of a part of my generalized project of doing what I see as, you know, uh, public engagement and um, education. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy reading the book. Um, it is, it's authoritative, it's detailed, it's rich, there's amazing stories in it. Uh, the argument you make is um, really compelling all the way through. It's also fun, and it's got the trademark Eleanor Yanaga uh, dry wit and humour. <laughs> well. I really love it. Thank you. So, just to give you an idea of the chapter headings, I mean, I think basically we'll try to we'll, we'll probably kind of the structure of this conversation will kind of like be based on the chapter headings. But mm-hmm. so, the first one is back to basics, which I'm really interested in talking about, like where thought about uh, being a woman comes from and then uh, men looking at women so beauty standards and how to attain beauty standards and maintain beauty standards how to love so how sex and relationships are organized in the medieval period and before and subsequently Um, how to be where we look at um, roles for women in society uh, around work and labor and um, and then finally white matters where we get into the where, where it's a, an amazing chapter it's oh, like thanks. it's a tour de force <laughs> uh, all right so <clears throat> let's start with the like the introductory chapter mm-hmm. which um really your your 
what I find really compelling about it is that you're um, you're telling the story of how the story of being a woman mm-hmm. has been created and how we have led to think of how how those stories have led us to think of womanhood, femininity in a very particular way, mm-hmm. and um, and we'll chat more about that, but. To, Give us a, like a... So you start with ancient Greece, right? Yeah. So fun fact, I initially wanted to call this chapter back to the basics. There's going to be like <laughs> brackets around the, but I was overruled. Oh, that's uh, a shame. I know. Well, there you yeah. go. Uh, the professionals uh, overruled me. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it actually sort of begins with uh, ancient Greece because that is what medieval people base most of their understandings of everything on. Um, so really, this is a chapter about how hegemonic ideals of, about femininity and women in general are constructed. Hmm. And the way that many people do that is starting with the ancient world. So uh, Plato, Aristotle, Galen, and, and, and you know guys like this, basically. Hmm. Um, and their understanding of women. So first they start out with those ideas, and essentially what that does is it helps to explain that women are this thing that is not a man. Right. Right. So, you know, the the default uh, hegemonic idea of how humanity works is that there's men, mm-hmm. and then there's the, the... And also women. You not know? men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and, the, and the not men. The um, two genders, yeah. men and not men. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's like... <laughs> Within this understanding, you know, you have uh, quite famously Aristotle's uh, approach to it, which is that women are sort of like inside out men Mm. or deformed men is another thing Mm. that he says. So, you know, really, in his opinion, which is completely wrong, I I don't like Aristotle. No. Um, I have to read about it. That that comes across in your work. Good. Yeah. Um, Because I really don't like that man. No. Um, But the way that he kind of sees it is that all embryos kind of start off as men. And then something goes wrong mm. in order to make them into women. Mm. Of course, uh, we know that this is actually the opposite way of how it works. And, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's quite funny. Not that I think something goes wrong to make men. I want to make that clear. Yeah. Uh, but so within this, then, you've got this Aristote- Aristotelian view. Now, earlier than that, you also have the Platonic sort of idea of the world where one of Plato's uh, myths of creation that he comes up with is this idea that again when humans first uh, came to exist on earth there were men so uh, gods kind of created men and then the way to understand uh, life and humanity is that after that uh, you know the, the people die right and if you haven't done the correct thing during your lifetime if you haven't sort of uh, been an idealized human then you'll be reincarnated but you'll be reincarnated as a woman so uh, which is kind of like a punishment right. um, so all women then are not good men right who have been forced to return to earth uh, in order to to uh, attempt to become a good enough human that they kind of earn their way out of the mm. cycle of uh, reincarnation um, these are then in contrast with uh, sort of Hippocratic or Galen, uh, Galen's theories about gender, which are more medical in nature because uh, both Hippocrates and Galen are physicians, uh, though some thousands of years apart. Um, and their, their sort of thing about the way to think about women is quite like the Aristotelian idea, which is that women are kind of inside out men. And the, the thing about women is that they have these things that men don't have that are internal. Mm. So um, the way to kind of think about women's bodies is that they are uh, this unknowable mystery. They're very secretive. Mm. There are all these things about them that people can't possibly understand because they're always internal and 
And moving around as well, weren't yeah. they? And causing affective uh, states of being, like hysteria, for example. Yeah, exactly. So the, the way that they think about uh, what they call the womb is that it's sort of like a little animal. It's like a, it's like a little guy <laughs> that's, right. that's wandering around in your body. Um, and it can climb on top of other organs, including like the brain. Um, and if it gets out of your brain, then it causes hysteria. And so the thing that needs to be done in order to keep the womb in place is for women to become pregnant. And so, uh, you know, oh, if you've got a hysterical woman, then then impregnate her and force her to go through childbirth, which may kill her, you know, and, but women are just so unruly that they need to be at all times kept pregnant uh, for their own safety, Mm. essentially. Um, so you have all these kind of classical ideas bubbling away in the medieval period. And then on top of that, you then add another veneer of Christianity. And so this uh, largely begins with who we call the Church Fathers. So this is people like St. Augustine or uh, St. Jerome. Um, And they say, oh yes, well, all of this is absolutely correct. Uh, All these things from the ancient period. But also, Jesus has come back from the dead. So here's, you know, all all of this uh, kind of Christian stuff on top. And so a lot of the ways that they get to understanding about women is by looking specifically at the Garden of Eden creation story. Mm Mm-hmm. And so all that does is reinforce, again, uh, these, these same ideas about men and women. So the first person who was ever created is a man. Mm-hmm. That's Adam. And Eve is created after him, more specifically, and also for him. Right. So she doesn't exist in any way um, on her own. Yeah. She was only ever created in order to make the man happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, on top of this as well, she is uh, sort of silly um, and easily swayed because she's the one who decides to eat from the tree of knowledge um, and also then sort of gain, well, sentience in this way. Mm-hmm. But ex- more expressly, um, within this kind of medieval, well, this isn't medieval, this is late antique, uh, but within this frame of thinking, uh, the original sin is sexual in nature. Mm. So what happens when Eve and Adam eat this fruit is that they become aware of the erotic possibilities of their bodies. Mm-hmm. So more expressly, women are responsible for the conception of sexuality, and as a result, they themselves are sexualized. So to be a woman is to be sexual because women are responsible for the fall of man. Um, And so these are the things that uh, medieval uh, philosophers, theologians, and society writ large are using as the building blocks for their understanding of how women exist um, and what it is that women are for and what women are doing. And by and large, those stories are told by men, right? Yeah. You kind of talk about in the opening chapter that there are some exceptions. Mm -hmm. We don't know about Mm -hmm. very many of the exceptions, but one of them uh, that we might have heard of, dear listener, is Hildegard of Bingen. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, who was saying something a bit more what we would term as radical, I guess, yeah. or feminist, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Hildegard of Bingen, like, the minute you ask a woman, you know, about these things, we see that there are really different opinions on the matter. So, um, uh, you know, a big way of kind of understanding the genders is that they're kind of divided in terms of having, you know, attributes, I suppose, mm-hmm. is a way of putting it. Um, and men get all the good stuff, right? So right. men are logical and they are rational and they are um, more spiritually minded and they are better at um, ignoring the wants of the body. Um, uh, whereas women are uh, stupid, horny gossips mm-hmm. who uh, uh, basically are only around to raise children and that's basically the only thing that they do well, right? 
So Hildegard, being a woman, doesn't think that this is true. And she says, okay, there are differences between men and women, uh, but actually it's not all that men are good and women are bad. It, it, everybody has many fine qualities about them. Yeah. And there are these differing things. Uh, so it's quite interesting because the moment you get to hear from a woman, you see this. And mm. um, also, as well as we talk about, I talk about uh, Christine de Pazan, who wrote The City of Women. Um, and she's got this great preamble in the book where she's saying, you know, everyone's always talking about how stupid and awful uh, women are, mm. you know, and, and talking about how um, silly they are and how um, they can't be trusted. Mm. Um, and I always used to take this as uh, certainly uh, take this as written and take this as being the unvarnished truth. But the more I thought about it, the more that didn't accord with my own life experiences. Right. And I've come to realize that this is just something that people say, and it's not actually true. And I find that really telling, because she says, you know, she's been confronted with this hegemonic idea of what women are and, and how they exist. But you, And you could take that on board, and she certainly was for quite some time, but it only works if you don't reflect on it, yeah. right? And I love that as a kind of introduction to the book itself, because... That's basically what what I'm getting at is that it's really easy to take on ideas about well you know women are X and they, it always has been this way mm-hmm. until the moment that you critique it yeah because it doesn't necessarily bear any it, it, on contact with reality it doesn't seem to be true the reason why the ideas of these uh, women from when was Hildegard around? A thousand years ago? Yeah, yeah, she's uh, about uh, 10th century, I don't know. The reason why we don't... No, no, 12th century, sorry. The reason why we don't know um, so much about um, medieval women theologians, ph- uh, physicians, philosophers is that uh, it's because their sources weren't kept, mm-hmm. because their stories haven't been passed down. Mm-hmm. So w- what's really smart about this opening chapter is that you have this section on these exceptional women in... Except in all senses, both senses of that term, I mean mm, that, mm. which demonstrates that these um, these thoughts, these stories were out there, these countervailing, counter-hegemonic stories. We will talk about what hegemony means in a second, because <laughs> I, well, I guess we're explaining it really at this point, but we'll come back to it. Um, uh, so those stories were out there. Yeah. Uh, it's just that they were chosen not to be listened to. Yeah, absolutely. So, and... Um, I guess that's what hegemony is. So mm-hmm. what we're talking about here is a very powerful set of stories which are told and retold in different guises by very, very powerful people leading people to think that there is a certain common sense around what a woman is and also what a man is. Mm-hmm. and But that that's what they are. They then get reinterpreted as people then think, well, it's natural because this is how women's for example, this is how women's bodies are, mm. but it's the stories that create the bodies and the bodies that create the stories, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. You know, so it's it, it, it's one of these things where you come up with a story and then uh, then the body kind of grows towards it, right? Yeah. You know, so it, it's kind of like phototroping with plants. You know, that's that becomes the light yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that things move towards. Uh, so you have to kind of understand the constituent parts in order to to begin to understand how these things come about. And that's a consistent theme throughout the book, which I think is uh, really really interesting. So if we get on to um, to uh, the body, uh, beauty standards, mm-hmm. and men looking at women. So um, it's a really interesting story about what the that that you know the idea of the beauty standard that we have nowadays. We you know we pick up from this from people saying quite straightforward things about 
influencers and Instagram and advertising yeah. and things. You know, we're quite familiar with this. And our beauty standards change all the time, but women have to be held up to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a very specific beauty standard uh, that, again, began in ancient Greece and then was fleshed out during the yeah. Middle Ages as well, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, this is what's a really interesting one to research because what we find here is that medieval people, when they want to decide what beauty is, you know, they, they do the same thing as they do in terms of like how they get their gender standards, which is they go try to see what the ancients thought about it. Um, and interestingly, the ancients don't have a whole lot to say. Uh, you yeah. know that that whole beauty is in the eye of the beholder thing uh, actually holds up in terms of what you see in ancient literature. Um, and especially within the context of ancient Greek literature, which is what uh, medieval people really want to go to, um, you don't see very much. And the, the person that they kind of go looking for descriptors of is Held of Troy. Yeah. Uh, you know, because like famously the hottest woman who ever lived. Um, and But the thing about this is if you go back and look at ancient poems, um, she's usually described as being blonde yeah. And having white skin. And that's about it. Like, that's that's what they've got. You know, she'll, she's fair. And you say here, uh, the point was to simply understand a vague concept of attractiveness, usually, a drink to, uh, usually linked to white skin and blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Everything else could be left to the reader's imagination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the basic thing that you need to understand is, you know, she's pale, she's blonde. And yeah. then, you know, well, what's your idea of a hot woman? That's yeah. what she looks like. Insert your own yeah. hot fantasy here. Exactly. Um, and so medieval people kind of look at this and they're, huh, you know, there isn't a whole lot to go off of. Um, but then what, when we start to see what we call literary portraits kind of take off in the high medieval period, so around about the 12th century, um, we see them draw on Helen and say, okay, well, here's how you describe a beautiful woman. And there, there are books, uh, so there's a particular book called The Ars uh, Versificatoria, uh, or The Art of the Verse Maker. And it says, okay, oh, you, if you are going to write poetry and you're going to write poetry about a beautiful woman, here's how you do it. We'll use Helen of Troy as an example. Mm. Um, and it makes it like a shopping list of what you should understand a beautiful woman to be. That usually moves from the head to the feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so women are supposed to be blonde. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to have a high forehead, mm-hmm. um, arched eyebrows, um, bright eyes. Now mm-hmm. the eyes sometimes as the period moves on um, move towards being gray. They really want gray eyes mm-hmm. um, in the medieval period. I don't know why. Uh, oh, the eyebrows are also black. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. Um, and then you have a complexion, often kind, uh, oftentimes called a, of snow and roses. So white skin, red cheeks, um, white teeth and sweet breath, a uh, mouth like a rose that pants for kisses. So like <laughs> nice, nice little uh, lips. Um, and then a neck long like a swan, um, round white shoulders, high small breasts, um, a luscious little belly. Mm-hmm. Long arms, uh, hands with long fingers, um, thighs are usually thick, um, mm-hmm. and then long legs and small feet, and that's that's a hot woman. And the thing that's interesting about this is this absolutely takes off, and everyone's like, "Yep, that's what that's what being a hot woman is." And yeah. so for the rest of the medieval period, even if you see um, any form of art or if you see any description of a beautiful woman, that's what she looks like. Yeah. To the point where it's like women are almost interchangeable yeah. in in some uh, pieces of artwork. Um, an example I used here uh, was the Virgin Martyrs in the Ghent altarpiece by Jan van Eyck. Mm-hmm. 
uh, which, which is, we've seen a few times. It's beautiful. It's absolutely. Yeah, I'm obsessed. Put it in you front know. of me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've got Eve, who looks like this um, on one side of it, and then you see um, the kind of the army of virgin martyrs coming to witness uh, the the marriage of the celestial virgin to space lamb, which is Jesus in the form of a lamb. Look, yeah. Revelation is a wild book. I don't know what to tell you. But the only reason you can tell any of the virgin martyrs apart in this is by what they're holding. Right. So uh, if they're holding their little sigil, you know, if it's if she's holding a tower, it's St. Barbara. If she's holding a lamb, it's St. Agnes, you know. Yeah. And that's the only reason you know who they are at yeah. all whatsoever, because they're completely interchangeable. Yeah. Because being beautiful is just this one specific thing. And so that is this very, very powerful specific story. And there are there are fewer there are fewer sources of stories then, I suppose. Yeah. Which means that it's easier to tell. So that's so it's a very powerful story that is, and it's the same story because in so it's it's being told constantly uh, throughout this emerging literature. But also there are there there are fewer sources than now. Yep. There are fewer people saying things. The, the um, you know literature, and again this is material because there were scriptoriums. Mm-hmm. So scriptoriums were places where, well, before the printing press, where um, stories were copied, re- recopied, and mm-hmm. rewritten. And distributed, so that's a form of technology that was able to spread some of these stories. Presumably, they're also spreading sermons and stuff, were they? Yeah, I mean, well, sermons less so, but uh, things like mystery plays, uh, plays in general. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, for our friends who are not uh, literate, you know, there were a lot of other ways of of kind of like getting this point across. Uh, Church art is a big way that um, it was spread, things like this. Um, And so, you know, that's all well and good, right? So, here's the way to be beautiful. They're telling you how you do it. Yeah. But the thing of this is then, they're also constantly on guard for if anyone does anything in order to try to live up to yeah. this beauty standard. Yeah, yeah. Because the point of it is, you're supposed to simply, as a woman, be beautiful. Yeah. And you're not supposed to strive to be beautiful mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. So there are all of these prohibitions against, for example, using makeup or using uh, depilatory techniques to give yourself arched eyebrows or mm-hmm. give yourself the really high hairline mm-hmm. that they like. Um, and, you know, there's stories that circulate about this, about how if you pluck your hairline, you're going to go to hell and demons will gnaw where you were plucking your hair. But also there were guidebooks on how to do it. Yeah. Well, weren't there? Like there, were, there was actual, there was actually, yeah. there, were, there were makeup tips. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. at the same time, so on the one hand, you're being told absolutely under no circumstances should you attempt to live up to this. But also this is the most important thing that a woman can be is beautiful. Yeah. And um, indeed being beautiful is kind of holy. Yeah. Right. So which is why you see the virgin martyrs all living up to the standard of beauty. And then at the same time, you have these uh, manuals that tell you how to make cosmetics uh, that are circulating all the time. They're like, oh, here's some depilatory creams. Yeah. Here's how uh, you make lipstick. Here's how you make blush. Here are, you know, uh, remedies against sunburn, which will, in theory, keep your skin white. Stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Um, so it is very much this thing where women are meant to understand that the most important thing that they can be is beautiful. Mm. But um, hopefully they will have just done that. Right. By being more. But I think it's also important to talk about, so this is where the material comes back into it, doesn't it? Mm. Because the the uh, the guys who are writing about um, what it is that a beautiful woman looks like, the people who are filling in the blanks of what mm-hmm. Helen of Troy uh, looks like, we're talking about what it is to be beautiful at, in, um, 
in 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 uh, the Middle Ages in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so only certain women could ever possibly look like that, and and that would only be, ever be really what you would say fifteen percent of the population. Yeah, absolutely. So there's like a we can't really say a class element to this yet, I guess, but we can talk about you know wealth and yeah, there's certainly a wealth element to yeah. it. Um, and I guess you would have to call it an estate element. Yeah, because given it's the, the estates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, the so the thing is here, all these beauty standards that are being put forward as written in stone, really, um, are all much easier to maintain if one is wealthy. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's easier to have white skin if you aren't a peasant who's out in the field all day looking after animals. Um, it is easier to have small, high breasts if you are a wealthy woman who gives her children to wet nurses. Yeah. Um, it is easier to have a pot belly if you are not doing manual labor all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, it is easier to have like these beautiful hands that they're constantly going on about if you're not doing your own washing. Yeah. So you know these these things may just seem like oh well you win the genetic lottery and you'd be fine and beautiful, but it's impossible actually to keep up a lot of these standards for the great majority of women who are out in the field farming all day. So that is a really another really good example of the of the story about bodies and the material bodies, um, how they interact and how they interact in this hegemonic way. So the story produces the the, the body, but the body also then reproduces the story. So it becomes this kind of self fulfilling um, kind of prophecy where. Um, where this is the thing being produced from a very particular set of circumstances, mm-hmm. like beauty is not th- these uh, these guys uh, who um, hanging out with or uh, having fantasies about uh, rich women looking a particular way. Yeah. You're never going to write these stories about you know uh, dark curly haired women in the fields with uh, <laughs> tans and different complexions and a little bit of sunburn and yeah. and uh, big booze because they've been. Um, uh, raising their own kids. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so let's move on to the stuff that we've talked about before on the show. So, if you are familiar with uh, our show, dear listener, if not, go back through the back catalogue. Yeah, and uh, maybe also subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. Let's talk about um, love and sex. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, um, let's go through the hits. <laughs> so go through all the hits, all the modern lovers tracks. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's um, start with Thomas Aquinas and then maybe work back backwards and forwards from there. Uh, Mr. Logical Sex. So there is only uh, so it's the whole idea of the purpose of sex and sex that sex was in the Christian era. There were several problems around sex, weren't there? That mm-hmm. it was something that had to be done. Um, but we had to they we had to find a way to do it in ways that are that are kind of licit that are kinds of ways that are okay yeah so we came up with marriage but what why is it that we came to this why is why was sex so problematic and why in uh, why in particular were women um seen as the uh, as the root of the problems that we have around sex yeah so you know as i've already said you've got the the creation story of Adam and Eve, and that's a huge part of it. But it it's not just Christianity that does this. Yeah. So even if you go back into uh, the ancient period, um, the same people who are saying that women are inside out men, like Aristotle, are saying that sex is bad. Yeah. Right. Um, so sex and sex is bad because it is seen as being kind of enervating. 
So if you have too much sex, I, I suppose, you know, if, if you wanted to, to be materialist about it, you could say, you know, they're kind of describing jouissance or something like that. You have too much sex and you become overwhelmed and then and illogical. Um, or if you are too lustful, it will lead you away from what it is that you should be doing, which is being um, a good sort of patristic man within society who is focusing on things. Um, like, uh, God knows, philosophy or, you know, politics, well, owning slaves, presumably. Those things are all fine, and that's what you right. should be thinking about, not sex. Um, and then that is contrasted with women, right? So, because men are logical and they understand that they should be being model citizens or what have you, um, women don't and aren't, right? So women are therefore hypersexualized uh, beings who they're just interested in sex and they don't think about anything else because uh, they are not a man. Right? So if a man ignores sex, then a woman doesn't. Um, then if you add the Christian gloss on top of it, you understand that uh, sex is a product of the fall of man. You know, Which isn't to say that sex wouldn't have existed if man hadn't fallen, but it wouldn't have been sexy, is yeah. what uh, St. Augustine says about it. Um, then... Uh, women are definitely interested in sex because they're responsible for it, mm -hmm. right? And then again, you know, men are more religious, men are more logical, they're able to know that sex is a bad thing that God doesn't like, um, and so they're more able to refrain from it. Uh, so as a result, women are understood to be kind of overwhelmingly interested in sex to the point that it endangers their souls or society or basically... Well, cities. Cities. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, absolutely cities. Um because, you know, they if you have too many women who are kind of, like, wandering around, they could just be distracting everyone with them. And if they have so much sex, they might literally burn the city to the ground. And um, this is the... Uh, so this is the uh, humor theory around mm. uh, women and sexuality? Yeah. yeah so, so within this, uh, humoral theory dictates that uh, men are hot and dry, whereas women are cold and wet. And one of the reasons that women are more desirous of sex than men is because since women are cold and wet, they wish to be warmed up. Mm. And because of the fricative properties of sex, they will then kind the of be rubbing. The rubbing. The yeah, they, yeah, they will be they will be warmed up. So women are kind of like um, lizards, but for sex, where you know they 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 would be cold um, unless they were warmed up. And so sex therefore makes women hotter and drier, but at the same time, it then takes those same properties and leeches them out of men. So men become colder and wetter during the process of having sex, which is to say that women become fem uh, men become feminized right. by sex, whereas women become masculine as a result of sex. Uh, we actually hear this now as well, yeah. Dan. We'll probably come back to this maybe later on, but like we, they talk about this in the manosphere, like yeah. this kind of thing where uh, it's said that... Uh, you're, if you enjoy having sex with a woman too much, you're a bit gay. Yeah, right, you know. <laughs> and that that is a bad thing anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. We'll come on to that. A spoiler. Absolutely, yeah, yes. Yeah, we've not left many of these ideas behind. No. Uh, so, yeah. And then, so, Thomas Quinas then enter uh, little Tommy Quine Quine. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. he his whole thing is a classic things is logical versus illogical. Yeah. Um, and he says, you know, the way to think about sexuality and sex is that, you know, if you must do it. And, you know, obviously for Christians, the ideal human doesn't have sex. The mm -hmm. ideal human joins the clergy and doesn't have sex. But if you must, then if you're going to do it, then you need to be having married sex for the purposes of procreation uh, and having the least amount of uh, pleasure from it as possible because you should be attempting to avoid pleasure because the more pleasure you experience, the more pleasure you're going to want to experience. Mm -hmm. 
which could deep that could tip you over into lust, which is one of the seven deadly sins, and that would be bad. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas is therefore constantly ranking forms of sex to say, well, this is the you know the logical one is uh, missionary sex with your wife on a Monday night with the lights out while you're not looking at her mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. Yeah. Uh, and then that would be fine. And so as a result, women are again seen as wanting in the sexual stakes here because the thing about women uh, that people noticed was they still wanted to keep having sex, you yeah. know, even after um, a, with, and to be clear, this is, it's a very basic understanding of sex. It's it's very cis, it's hetero, this is how yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, men may have ejaculated and be um, in the, you know, uh, refractory period uh, but women still want to have sex and the woman might have already orgasmed but she wants to orgasm again or women are interested in having sex when they're on their periods um, and that's completely illogical because not even horses do that right right like and this is a specific thing there's a lot of um for whatever reason uh comparing women to horses so you know it's like horses only are interested in having sex when they're on heat and why is it that women are interested in having sex all the time so there are these things about women that are completely illogical um which means that they are they also need to be then kept under the control of men Mm -hmm. because god knows that if you don't keep an eye on them they'll be having all these kinds of sex which are illicit out of bounds you know so they they'll be having sex with guys they're not married to they'll be having affairs they'll be doing all these things so it's up to the men in their life to control them in order to stop them from doing that and that might be their their father it might be their brothers or it might be somebody that they're married to but it's absolutely key that a man looks after women because they're simply unable to stop themselves they're they're insatiable and and stupid yeah Right, and these stories are told uh, through. Uh, so, a good example of these stories being retold in um, in popular literature is the Canterbury Tales, for example, yeah. and like the Wife of Bath, mm-hmm. um, and where it's clear that uh, in these societies, uh, like ordinary women, were able to have some degree of uh, sexuality, but there was a huge amount of shame, and mm. um, and uh, uh, like social disciplining. Uh, oh, yes, of yeah. of uh, of women doing it, so there was there was this thing of the church saying one thing and people doing another, but mm. that social disciplining of um, I guess what we might now call in modern day language women's sexuality was very much there, wasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. So you know, even when there is this theoretical way of having sex that is acceptable, you know, the the entire point of the wife of Bath and her prologue is that she's abusing the system. Yeah. Right, because she's been married, you know, numerous times, and she expressly says the reason that she gets married to guys is she picks the richest guys with the biggest dicks. I think. Yeah. Um, is what she says. She she chooses them for the size of both their purses. Right. Um, and so, and, and she expressly states that she's never going to be celibate, and so she's going to just keep getting married. If they die, she's going to keep marrying them because she wants to shag, and that's the thing that she's interested in. And so even there we see, um, you know, that the, the, the worry about women and the distrust of women, because, you know, they, even when they're playing by the rules in this particular way, the, you're not supposed to do it like that. You know, that's kind of considered gaming the system. Yeah. As it were. So you have to understand women as also, you know, kind of being devious. In this matter. So always trying to kind of like get around things, you know, always going right up to the line with what is acceptable um, because of this insatiable drive of lust. Um, It's interesting because that does flip in the later period where, but also, I guess we'll talk about that 
another time. But um, women are still othered in this way by saying you're both too horny or not horny enough yeah. now as well. Mm. And that both these things are kind of problematic, that there is a Goldilocks level of horniness within yeah. particular within a particular um, uh, sexual relationship and also within a particular sexual acts. Um, but also, I suppose, what we're, what they're, again, to, to, to talk about this, uh, you, you mentioned feminist new materialism at the, mm. at the beginning of the show, and you just mentioned the refractory period. Mm. I suppose what they might be doing, Eleanor, is looking at, you know, this is how penises work, they ejaculate, after ejaculation they get soft. Mm. Yeah. Arousal has gone. Mm. And they're looking at what they can see in the vulva, or what they experience of the vulva, and when the vulva is aroused and turned on, because there isn't an equivalent kind of refractory period for most people with vulvas, we're, uh, we're interchanging words, women, and you know, yeah, we have yeah. to look at this in a in a modern day context where not everyone who has a vulva is a woman, and not all women have vulvas. Um, but so, so what they're seeing in these bodies are are kind of explaining their stories rather yep. than looking at the body as a new way of telling a different story. Mm-hmm. What else might the body be? They're looking at these stories and say, well, men are rational because they get hard, they jizz quickly, the penis goes soft, they're done, yep. they're in and out. Mm-hmm. And these women, they're cold and wet to start with and then it takes them a long time to get warmed up and then they're dangerously horny for... Yep. The rest of the time. That's why you can only do it on a Monday because you can't be horny when you go to church yeah. a day or two later. That, that's right. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but they are telling the stories from the ancient Greeks that have been passed down and passed down and passed down mm-hmm. to explain the body rather yeah. than allowing the body to explain itself. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's that um, you. It, it's not as though these things are based on observed fact. It's that the the story already exists, and then you just kind of say, "Oh well," and, and look, the body is backing me up here. Yeah. See. Yeah, absolutely. All right, do we need to say, should we say anything else about sex and love? Um, no, I really like that chapter. Yeah, it's really great. <laughs> well, don't want to give it away, you should buy it. Yeah. Um, fans of the show, you should buy it. Um, let's talk about uh, a little bit about how to be, and let's just talk about um, motherhood. Because, mm. again, this is something which, which I think is um, really important to pass. And I think, you know, we're not saying that we're a bit kind of team Hildegard because we're saying, you know, um, in this era, men and women's bodies are different. And we could say even say now that, uh, on average, over the over the over the, the spectrum of uh, of bodies, that there are differences between yeah. uh, men and women, but they are overstated, mm-hmm. overdetermined, and the similarities are often overlooked. And which is, I think, some of the things that you mentioned in the book. Motherhood is something, though, where there is like a, a um, mm. there is clearly a difference. And again, but there is a kind of another kind of this that we can take. But um, why is it that that mothers are expected to, why is it that women are expected to be mothers in the medieval period? Like what what's going on there in, in uh, uh, materially as well as, um, I suppose, like, I suppose as well as the stories, like as well as discursively? Yeah, I mean, so here you are um, that... The major expectation that women face in the medieval period is that they will become wives and mothers. And um, in many ways, that's what a woman is for. Um, you know, because again, this thing of that's that's what God created them to be. God created them to uh, be a partner to men, uh, do things that men didn't want to do, keep men company, and give birth to children. Um, and this is a really kind of tricky proposition, especially in the medieval period, because then as now, um, you know, pregnancy and childbirth are incredibly dangerous. Yeah. 
Um, you know, it's it's still incredibly dangerous, and people ignore this fact. Uh, but uh, it, it was extremely so in the medieval period. And so there was always this kind of uh, constant gambling with women's lives, you know, and, you know, as we've already spoken about, there's also this understanding that there's kind of a necessity of women to be pregnant. Otherwise, uh, they are a danger to themselves and, and just kind of annoying. Yeah. Right. Which is, oh, they're a bit annoying, aren't they? So get them pregnant and it'll calm them down, which is also quite funny. Uh, because of the discomfort of pregnancy and how, yeah. you know, and what women uh, need um, as a result of it, or, you know, just indeed pregnant people. Yeah. At any rate, um, the thing of this is, is that women are then used as a particularized tool in order to uh, continue on lineages and families, essentially. Yeah. So, so women are necessary here in order to create families that continue on um, so that property can be passed down. Mm -hmm. So women are just kind of this expedient way to make a family's fortunes continue. Mm -hmm. um, and they are kind of neither here nor there. Mm. You know, say you have daughters, you can marry them off in order to make alliances if you're pretty high up mm -hmm. um, in, in a family. But, you know, if you're a peasant, like 80% of people, um, then, you know, that, that's not really how it works. You know, you've just got these kind of extras. Yeah. around the shop. Um, and so the only way that a woman really can uh, be conceived of as useful is if she joins another family mm -hmm. and then, you know, gives them children. Yeah. Right? So um, women are mostly there to endanger their own bodies in order to ensure a smooth transfer of property. And um, because of infant mortality in mm. Middle Ages. This is something that people really misunderstand, so mm. good if you could just spell this out for us, Dr. J. Yeah, so infant mortality is incredibly high up until the 19th century um, when we uh, invent vaccines. Mm -hmm. About 50% of all people die before they are two years old. Um, and this is uh, a fact that propagates myths about uh, life expectancy in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. uh, so people will say, oh, the average life expectancy is 35. Um, but that's skewed by the fact that 50% of all people are dead before they're two. Um, if you can make it out of infancy, um, and if you're a woman and you don't die in childbirth, you can expect to live into your 70s or 80s. And that's in no way out mm -hmm. of the ordinary. Um, and that's part of one of the things that women would be expected to be helping out with is they would be expected to be looking after these older members of their family yeah. uh, as part of it as well. But um, also because of high infant mortality, you have to keep women around and they have to continue to get pregnant and produce more heirs because, well, what if this one dies? And that takes up a lot of their life. Yeah. As well as um, as well as feeding the children as well. Mm -hmm. So during that period, during the period, well, I, I guess it's thought that there is like a contraceptive effect too. Yeah. breastfeeding so that whole period might last until so the whole period of like pregnancy to when a child is old enough to be uh fed from without breast milk might be quite a few years yeah. so um there might be some deaths in between mm. uh also the woman herself might die although yeah. there's i guess it's another story to tell about uh, medieval attitudes towards abortion and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and women and stuff which is quite interesting but um so materially, that produces this because women are expected to do this, or, or no one else can. No one else's bodies have uteruses, mm. you know. Um, and because of the expectation of creating heirs mm. within a society which is structured wherein they it's expected that they create heirs and that women have this particular role, mm. that society being structured based on the stories that have been told from ancient Greece through Rome through early Christendom. 
and that that is the way that society was structured then to an extent still the way that our societies are structured now from um in uh the in power relations of uh of middle ages uh europe and and power relations of uh late sca- late stage capitalism that we have now i guess mm, so mm. um but it was only within that uh, social, social order that women were expected to fulfill those fulfill those roles and also fulfill caring roles as well yeah absolutely also women were expected to work too as well you know and it was seen as work yeah absolutely so it's quite interesting because uh, the way that medieval people talk about this you know being being mothers being wives um it is as understanding that as a form of labor yeah. you know um you know the, the reason that we call childbirth labor is because it's really hard work and it's awful um, and we will see, uh, you know, for example, tracts which are encouraging women uh, to become nuns as opposed to uh, wives and mothers that expressly talk about how horrible that is and how hard uh, it is to run a household and do all of the domestic things that are expected of women on top of the everyday work which all women perform. Um, you know, there's there's rather a lot of this in the chat in the chapter where I talk about all the forms of work that women were doing. But uh, suffice to say that women are also involved in pretty much every form of work that there was at the time, as well as being wives and mothers. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of two things going on there. Uh, but they really clearly understand domestic labor as labor mm-hmm. and discuss it as such, which I think is a really good and important and something that we could learn from. Yeah. Okay, so let's give people a flavour of the of the final chapter, the why it matters, mm. and also let's kind of expand this and talk about um, feminism and the left and history, and also relationships and and sex and and culture mm. or culture sex relationships because huh. uh, we both have frustrations about this uh, politically as well. So, yeah. um, so it's really so all of this is to show that the and as we've been talking about, the stories that are told about women produce these um, these uh, material discursive bodies that are then uh, that that we don't critique enough mm-hmm. in modern day. Mm. In, 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 and so there's this sense of that if we look to history, that history tells a certain gives us a certain set of common sense assumptions that we're not really checking with and we're not really. Mm. Um, challenging or critiquing uh, effectively are we yeah absolutely and this is a thing that frustrates me is that i think that too often the left completely seeds ground yeah on this one where the left 100 percent buys in to the hegemonic structure of uh, you know gender and says oh yeah okay so traditionally women always were this this solely domestic animal uh but you know we can build a bolder future where that is no longer the case And whilst we've discussed a lot of the things that are similar across time, what I'm hoping the book is doing is showing that whilst expectations of women remain the same, the justifications for why women are expected to be that way are in constant flux. So there's never one way um, ever of saying that women are supposed to be particularly attractive except for the thing that remains the same is that uh, rich women are attractive. Um, The thing about uh, women and sexuality is that if we like sex, women don't like it. If uh, we don't like sex, women do like it. So the point is that women are just sexually disordered. Um, in terms of work, sure, women were always responsible for the domestic realm, uh, realm, but historically, they were always in the public sphere and they were always working. There's only this very, very brief 
brief kind of blip with uh, that begins with the Victorians and actually um, it peaks in the Edwardian era uh, where women are seen as being solely domestic and that is as a result specifically of enlightenment values um, and then it only applies to bourgeois women yeah. um, you know so they come up with this idea that it's quote unquote scientific that women are meant to be uh, in the domestic realm because they have children um, and so men should go out and women should stay home and that is taken as a historical fact that has always been true that left should maybe fight against that but what the left should be doing is looking at history and saying these are not th- these are not true things yeah um and what we need to do is even though we're up against a hegemonic ideal about women um that's culturally constructed yeah you know, it's something that we are all making at all times. And when you understand there's no historical basis for it, and you understand that, you know, the way that we think about women now is extraordinarily new, you can then get rid of it. Yeah. You know, um, I'm not saying that cultural constructs aren't real. I'm saying they're very real. But the point is they're constructs, so we could stop doing them if we so choose. Yeah. But we're never going to stop doing them if we just say, oh, yeah, you're right. It's, mm-hmm. it's always been like this for women. This is always the way that we've thought about women. And it's not true. The only thing that we've always thought about women is they're bad. Well, what people are doing is getting it wrong as well. They're, they, are looking at, they are looking at very basic essentialist views of what a women's body does and then extrapolating and, mm. land, and then adding on top, on top of that all of the hegemonic stories we have about which explains women. Mm. That's not true. Mm. Yeah. It's just not. that the, the stories produce the body and as I keep kind of saying it's become like a bit of a catchphrase. Um, <laughs> and it's, and, but when we say, when we do this kind of uh, like biological essentialism, mm. uh, you know, that women's bodies are more likely to, to do these things and look in particular ways, therefore they have to do this. Like, for example, sure, um, uh, women or people with uteruses um, can produce children, but that doesn't mean that they have to be a carer yeah. of aforementioned child, yeah. right? And or, or, or even, a carer in the community of other people. Or even if one can have children, that doesn't mean that one must, right? You know, or that that make that, or that obviously that makes you a woman if you do that. Mm, mm. Um, I guess also let's talk about the right for a minute as well, because when we're talking about the left here, we're not necessarily just talking about the left. We're talking about anyone who is non-right wing because yeah. the right wing obsess about this stuff. Oh god, yeah. The right wing are obsessed with sex mm-hmm. and relationships mm-hmm. and love and how we organise sexual and romance relationships. And they're obsessed with gender. They're obsessed with mm. men. Are men? They're obsessed with this Aristotelian uh, mm-hmm. um, way of of thinking about gender. That you know that men are rational and women are you know irrational and that you know men are you know uh, strong and women weak you know that kind of horrendous uh, mm. binary um uh simone de beauvoir would say would, would you know sum this up saying that you know men are the subjects and women are the inessential other yeah and um but the right are completely obsessed with it and we uh, and anyone who is not the right who sees ground to it is allowing the right to take over this is where people like you know when people ring the hands around andrew tate influencing young men mm, in, mm. you know in, uh, which I wish they wouldn't do I might do a separate <laughs> podcast about it uh, but you know but unless you're saying anything else or unless you're giving people tools to actually figure out how to do sex and relationships and gender mm, mm. for themselves then then yeah they mm-hmm. are you know what do you think about it yeah absolutely so we you know, this, this This is the point. It's oftentimes, really unfortunately, um, these are these are all things that are treated um, as frivolous. 
Yeah. So it's quite interesting because uh, the left will treat these things as an afterthought. You know, there's no real reason why you need to uh, like even necessarily think about gender at all whatsoever, um, or and certainly not you know sexuality. That's treated as, as something that can be taken care of after the revolution. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, and that, and it will theoretically sort itself out once we reach a classless society. This this sort of a thing, um, but we have to understand that the right are taking this very seriously. Yeah, like just like you say, and the right have this understanding of sexuality, which is that uh, directly linked to fecundity, mm-hmm. uh, directly linked to procreativity, mm-hmm. um, and more specifically, um, in a kind of ongoing domination um, and to a certain extent humiliation mm-hmm. um, of women as. As a result of it um, and they're doing that yeah uh, if you want an example of this dear listener um, look at the rhetoric of Giorgio Maloney um, mm-hmm. the uh, head of the right-wing government in, in Italy now uh, and also the rhetoric we had a few weeks ago thankfully it's died down but the whole uh, bonk for Britain thing oh god uh, so uh, me and Scott Burnett who is a scholar on um, on race but also uh, has done a lot of work on the manosphere um, I interviewed him for um, an episode. If you go back uh, over the last couple of episodes, you'll find my interview with him about that. Um, so they, so the right are able to see these connections between um, politics and the body and sexuality and gender in these ways. And yeah, the left completely sees ground in this way. Mm, yeah, you know, and um, you, you, these, these things are important. And indeed, you know, from a feminist perspective, you know, uh, I hate to remind everyone of this, but the personal is political. Uh, and so, you know, the, these these personal ways of understanding women uh, will come back to bite us if we don't actually pay attention to them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from the very core of my soul, <laughs> I hope that people will, will have a, a read of this book and understand that it is the time uh, to start working on these things mm-hmm. uh, because it's possible to do so and we don't have to simply give into hegemonic structures as they are. No. Absolutely, and that should be what the that should be what the work of any kind of uh, politics should be doing. Mm. And this book is very much part of that. So let's plug the book again. Yeah, the once and future sex. The the title's great. The covers amazing. That's beautiful, isn't it? Going medieval on women's roles in society. It's on W.W. W. Norton. Uh, don't know if that helps. And it's out on the seventeenth of January in the US. Yeah, twenty twenty-three, and I think it's like the second of March here in the UK, early March anyway. Yeah, I can tell you that. And so uh, people can follow you, can't they? To yeah, find out more of these about more of these things and, and more of your writing. Where can... <laughs> yeah, you can find me um, on Twitter for now until it implodes. Um, at Going Medieval, I'll pretty much be doing nothing but talking about the book. Um, and also periodically I write similar things for my blog which is going-medieval.com and if you're interested in, join, in joining Eleanor's Patreon oh yeah that is uh, patreon.com slash going medieval what do they get there they get extra oh you get extra yeah you get um, a bunch of extra stuff so uh, there are two um, extra pieces of content a month. Uh, so a podcast where we analyze medieval documents and then at the end of the month it, it depends. Sometimes videos, interviews with other medieval historians, sometimes uh, uh, content about cities, uh, sometimes written pieces, all sorts, essentially. You also have a podcast with someone else? Yes, and I also have a podcast which is called uh, We're Not So Different. Mm-hmm. You can follow us on Twitter at WNSDpod um, and find We're Not So Different uh, wherever good podcasts are uploaded. 
And you might also like to, if you want to see Dr. Eleanor in action, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> in some of her amazing coats and garbs, yeah. uh, she can be found on History Hit, which yeah. is, uh, it's like, a, it's the Netflix of history documentaries, isn't that, it? That's right, yeah. So I make uh, medieval history documentaries for History Hit, so you can check those out. Um, and also I think there's some YouTube vi- clips there are uploaded, the whole yeah. so the whole one about uh, women brewers beer in the medieval yeah, yeah. ages and women brewers yeah uh, where you drink some medieval beer Man, apparently that beer was so good I didn't get any of that well okay so the, the problem was that it was in this just big plastic mm-hmm. tub and I couldn't be just mm-hmm. like can I take your giant plastic mm-hmm. tub yeah mm-hmm. I know like look oh and apparently it goes off after a couple of days because they didn't have hops to, oh it was so that good that a preservative though. yeah but it tasted really good and it's made from local herbs and things anyway that's on YouTube yeah anyway go check out her work if you're not already familiar and of course if you want to go back and listen to me and Eleanor talk about sex jams sex jams uh, <laughs> we do that the last one we did was Freak uh, oh, by Lord Savior George Michael or Pronovis what a banger and uh, we'll do some more of those at some point but as you can probably tell Eleanor's kind of busy. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> until next time, thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.